Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Asban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masach Etzuka, DAP Lamedalad, page 34. We're going to start on yesterday's DAP with the next mission in our parak, and now we're going to move on to the Arevos. Areva Gazula B'Yavesha Psula. So again, the same formulation that we keep seeing in these Mishnayos, right? The willow branch that's stolen um, or is dry is not considered to be kosher. It's Pasul to use as one of the Aramiim. Again, the same formulation, right? If it was used in some type of idolatrous form, it's pasul. So if the top is cut off or its leaves were severed, or if it's the sap safa, which the Gemara will explain later what that is, it seems to be a species that is similar to the Arava, but is not exactly the Arava, right? Psula, it's also pasul. Let's say it's slightly dry, only a, a small portion of its leaves fell off, like the minority, or um, it's a branch from a willow that doesn't grow by the, the river, but is instead from some type of non-irrigated field, um, it's considered to be kosher. So the Gemara basically starts a discussion by trying to, when it says in Vayikra, chapter 23, verse 40, describing what this is, right? It says, Arve Nachal, willows of the brook. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out, right, it's, it starts off by saying, Tan Ravanan, Arve Nachal, Hagdelin al Nachal, right? It has to actually, uh, you know, it, it has to grow by a brook. Or maybe it's that, you know, Dabarcher, Arve Nachal, Sha'ala, Shala, Mashuch, Kenachal, that their leaves are shaped in a way that looks like a brook. Um, and it spends some time trying to figure out exactly what this, what this Arve Nachal is, what do we learn from the language of Narve, Arve Nachal, and what this Sat Safa is, and, and why that wouldn't be kosher for it. But I want to s- jump down to a different piece of the discussion here, where Rav Chista comes and says the following, I'm a Rav Chista, Hani Tlata Mile Ishtane, so Rav Chisa says that there are three sort of objects whose names were changed once the temple was destroyed, right? So there were three things that used to be called one name. And then once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, was called something else. And I think this is an interesting concept because there's sort of what's being implied here is, is that the, you know, you had this tremendous inflection point with the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and sort of things become so topsy-turvy that Missouri you had about calling something one name, it sort of gets mixed up and it gets called by sort of its, its opposite or by a word that means something else. And this becomes confusing when it comes to halakha. So, so it talks about chalfata aravata, right? So this chalfata, right? So the willow, would, which later was called Chalfata, which is another word for the tzapsafa, right, was later, right, arvata chalapta, was later, right, was actually was a chalfata, which was called a willow, right? So in other words, these were names that got mixed up. My nafkamine lululav. So what's the nafkamina? Like, who cares that the name was actually changed? So it has to do with the lulav, right? That one of the, the species, right, one of the the species that you use in a lulav is a willow branch, but now it's really called a tzap or a chalfata. 
So what was what we used to call an araba is not really an araba anymore, and it has this new name of the chalfata, right? So that can be very confusing because it has to do with are you actually taking the correct species for the lulav? Now we have another one, shipura chatsrotsrata, right? So that would, which was called a trumpet, right? Was later called a shofar, right? Chatsrotsrata shipura. And that which was called a trumpet was later called a shofar, right? My nafkamine, with shofar Rosh Hashanah. So again, what's the nafkamine here? It has to do with the halachot of shofar and Rosh Hashanah, right? On Rosh Hashanah, you need to use a shofar. But today, if somebody asked what instrument should they use, they actually would be calling it a chatzotzrota and not a shofar, which to me, I actually found of all the examples, this one was the most interesting to me because like we would never, like we call it by its correct name today. And then finally, we have the last one, patruta, patru, patura, right? Patura, patruta. So this seems to be some type of large table and a small table, so originally it was called a patura, but later it was called a patruta, right? And then you have the patura, which was later called a patruta. And again, lamaynafkamine, what is the difference for it? Lamikach ulememkar, right? For buying and selling. That if you now buy a patura, it used to mean a large table, but now it means a small table. So those are Rafkitsa's examples that he has. Again, the one that was sort of most shocking to me was the chauffeur one. Amar Abai, so Abai says, Apani Omer, so Abai also says, I have one too. Bekase Huvlila, Huvlila Bekase. So we have this thing called a Huvlila, which was sort of the first compartment of the stomach of an animal where they chew their cud. But now, what is it called? It's called a Bekase. So in other words, the first word that we have in all of these things, that's what the new name is. And the second word is telling us what it used to be called. So also the Gemara itself is a little bit I have to read it a few times to sort of tease out what was the earlier name, what was the later name, right? So now it's called the Beit Kase, this, this opening chamber, right? Huvlila Beit Kisei. And then this Beit Kisei, right, is now called, what is it actually? It's now called the Huvlila. Lamai nafkamine. So what's the halachic implication of this? Lamachad nimsa be'ovi Beit Hakusot. So it has to do with the needle that's found in the thick wall of the second compartment of the stomach. Right. So we have this halacha where we call something that's called in right, which is the idea is, is that if you shechted an animal, that when you then go to clean it out, you find out that actually it had some type of issue with it, that it actually would have died in less than a year. It's not considered. To, it was actually a trape animal. It actually was not a kosher animal. And even though you shechted it, it's, it's still considered to be trape and you can't eat it. Right. So one of those halachot is, is that if you have a needle that let's say an animal swallowed a needle and that needle's in the wall, the second compartment of the stomach, but it's only on one side that animal is still considered to be kosher. But if the needle penetrates both sides of the compartment of the second stomach, then it's considered to be trait. In the first stomach, if it only penetrates one side, then the animal is considered to be trait. So we're a little bit more make out with this halacha, with the needle, with the second stomach. But therefore you need to really know what part, what compartment are you talking about, right? Are you talking about the first, the first compartment or the second compartment? So if the names got switched, that's actually very important. I'm a Rabbi Bar Yosef. Rabbi Bar Yosef also has one. Babel Borsif, Borsif Babel, right? So he says that there was a city sort of in biblical times 
that was called Babel, right? And then later it's called Borsif, right? And Borsif was called Babel and later. So again, these names got switched up, right? What is Lamai Nafkamine, Ligite Nashim, right? And so what was the difference for this? It had to do with the with bills of divorce, right? With Gittin. Because we know that with divorce, you need to make sure it's a little bit different than Ketubot. With the halachot of Gitanar is that every detail that is specified in a get, we need to make sure it's 100% accurate. So that needs to do with the names of the people who are involved, even to the point that if somebody has a nickname, that's very, you have to use the nickname. And the place where the people are, where the get is being written, needs to be, needs to be correct. So therefore, we need to make sure, right, that when we're using the names, it's the correct name, and that if we have a place where the name was changed later on, that may affect how we actually write the get itself. So I just thought this was a great passage that shows us sort of, first of all, I love how Rav Kista frames it, that it seems to be related to a traumatic event in Jewish history, and that we also see sort of that like language changes, that sometimes what was meant by a word or how something was called in an earlier generation, it changes in a later generation. And that change really can have tremendous impact on halakha because you could be looking at a text or there could be a or you quote a tradition where it's using one word, but it doesn't mean what it means in modern day language or in the time of the Gemara where these Amoraim are talking. So I, I thought this was a really interesting passage that shows us how history impacts halakha right? And that th- that traumatic events can actually change something halachically or can have an impact halachically. Um, and that also language is actually very important to halacha. We need to make sure, particularly when we're still talking about Torah Sheba Alpen, oral tradition, things are not being written down, they're not annotated, right? That how things are described orally really can impact how they're understood halachically. So I just want to, I meaning I think you've said what I want to say, but I want to reiterate it anyway, because I think it's just that important. This idea that language changes is something that I think we take as a given in this day and age. We know that we use language differently than, you know, our grandparents might. And certainly, and likewise, that our children might, right? And we, we see that over time. We see that if you look at literature or poetry, something like that, we, the, the terms themselves change. And that's what's happening here. And I would say, like, I I almost would say, well, this is a tautology, right? Like, of course, language changes. What's the big deal? And then, of course, the Gemara comes to sh- show us exactly what the big deal is, because for sometimes it doesn't matter what something is called, except for, like, you know, when you go to purchase it, you got to get the right thing. But sometimes what something is called, the, the very nature of calling it by that name is going to have halachic implications, like, for example, with the Gittin in particular, and perhaps with the chauffeur. I found that to be very interesting. I found the the Gemara's resolution, like why it's important to talk about the fact that these names have changed for more than just clarity, you know, um, to know that these two things mean the same thing. That would just be for clarity. Thanks so much for helping us, right? But this goes a step beyond that because of the halakhic ramifications. Um, well, right, I agree. And I just want to note, I think everybody would have expected Anne for you to read this part, but you did want the next <laughs> Mishnah and I gave it to you. Okay, thank you for that. Um, uh, I, in part, I wanted the next mission because it's it, you know, goes over some of the theme themes, points, halachic points that I've already discussed 
because the same material kind of, you know, falls back in itself, as the Gemara does. Rabbi Shmuel Omer, Shloshach Adasim Ushte Aravot Lav Echad Ve'atrog Echad, Afil Ushnaim Ketumim Ve'achad Eino Katum. So here we're talking about literally the mitzvah of taking the, the Dalad Minim, these four species, and it's its own mitzvah, right? It's in the Torah as its own mitzvah. And here is the list. According to Rabbi Shmuel, you take three Hadasim, three myrtle branches, two Aravot, two willow branches, and one lulav and one etrog. Now, that by itself is, you know, the obvious, right? That's that's those are the those are the meaning that you take. Those are the four species, the four plants. Then even Rabbi Shmuel says as follows: Afilu shnaim ketumim v'achad eno katum. If two of the myrtle branches have lost that, you know, have had their their the top of them cut off, but one of them is not cut off. That's fine. It will still count. Um, and part of the discussion that I saw about why this is fine is because there are times that it will, the fact that the top is missing is not inherently a, a blemish for a myrtle branch because sometimes you could have had a berry there and then it would look like it's cut off even though it's not really cut off. So the the phenomenon of it being missing in that way is not inherently a disfigurement, so to speak. Rabbi Tarfon Omer, I feel that we'll remember Rabbi Tarfon is more machmir in general. He takes a more stringent approach. Rabbi Tarfon Omer, I In this case, he takes a more lenient approach. He said, or maybe more stringent with regard to making sure you can uh, bench lulav, right? He says, even if all three of the tops are cut off, you're fine. You have, a, you still have a lulav. Those hadasim are still hadasim. Rabbi Akiva Omer, kishem shalulav achad vetrov achad. And here we have a much, much, much more lenient position from Rabbi Akiva, who says that the same way that the four meaning, the four species here, include one love and one etrog. So we should also say it could be one myrtle branch and one willow branch. We don't need the three and the two. One alone of each of them would be sufficient to take the arba meaning. I don't know if we, I mean, I guess we live in this kind of... Era of abundance and the phenomenon of what if you only have one hadas or one arava is is thankfully quite far removed from us. I think not, I'm not saying that everybody can run out to afford, you know, and can afford the most expensive lulav and etrog that's out there. Certainly not. I can't. But on the other hand, it has not. You know, we don't think of there being a shortage of the actual plants. Um, at least not in. Well, I guess it depends where you live, but certainly not in Israel where I live, but also in most Western countries, there's basically, you know, a relative, uh, a relatively brisk import-export business right around this time of year. I do remember, Yordana, do you remember this? There was one year that because of, I don't remember, maybe it was 9-11, maybe right after 9-11 when they weren't allowing any ships, uh, you know, they weren't allowing any travel to the U.S. And there was the ship of Lulavim, of palm branches itself, not the other species was coming from Egypt and it it you know didn't get there in time and there's a big you know brouhaha what was going to be for the little of them I think it worked out in the end but I do remember there being concerns about a shortage beyond that I don't recall there ever being a shortage I, um, I do remember that a little bit okay um okay so let's just take a quick look at the Gemara here Tanya Rabbi Ishmael Omer pre-Eitzadar so of course this is the biblical, well, now the Gemara is going to give us the biblical text that's going to explain exactly why we need these four species. 
So the first position is, of course, about the etrog. This is a verse from Vayikra, Kav Gimel, chapter 23, verse 40. The one etrog, Priyetzadar. And then it says, Kaput Tamarim. Kaput Tamarim is the one lulav. Now, Kaput here, Kaf Pei, Taf is the, is the kicker. It's written, instead of saying Kaf Pei Vav Taf, in the biblical text it's written Chaser. It's written missing that Vav, which is one of the ways we say, oh, see, it's only just one lulav. You don't need two branches to be to be um, to fulfill, fulfill the mitzvah. Achad anaf etzavot. I'm sorry. Kapot marim achad anaf etzavot shlosha. So now that's the myrtle. Anaf etzavot, and then arve nachal shteim. Vafilush. Um, that's the the willow two branches. Vafilush naim ketumim. Even if they're cut off, vechad shino katum. And again, this is about the myrtle that. Even if two are cut off and one is not cut off, you're still fine. So what we've got here is a brighter, which pretty much lines up, you know, a very nice echo of the mission that we've just read. And Rabbi Kivomerch, so too, right? It basically goes through everything that was in the Mishnah. Now, this by itself is interesting to me because I, I think it's not, as much as we often see brightot that are brought, right, tannitic material that is brought to support the positions in the Mishnah or to argue against them even, right, in this case, it has the verses that are missing from, that are not present in the Mishnah. But beyond that, the halachot and the opinions to which, you know, each each um, Tana and the opinions ascribed to him line up very nicely. So it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to me that the Gemara brings such a close mirror of the Mishnah. But the discussion continues. <laughs> so Rabbi Lezer wants to know, <clears throat> he says, you can't say one and one and one and one. You can't just say everything, each one of them should be just one of them because you've got one etrog and one lulav. Because, for example, if that were the case, you might think that you would then bind the etrog together with the other species. And we know that when you come to Benjalulav, you put your palm branch in the center and you put your Hadassim on the right and the Aravot on the left, and you bring the etrog together, like in another in your other hand, or if your hands are large enough, you can hold them all together in one hand, mine or not, or at least never in my experience thus far. Um, I guess I've never had a small enough etrog to be able to hold them, everything in one hand. But the point is that it's not bound together. The the first three are bound together, but the etrog is not. Amarta kapot. So you could like so the idea is you want to bind them bind them together. Well, we've got verses that say the fruit the fruit of a priyatadar, right? The the fruit of the, the beautiful tree and the branches of the date palm. So maybe that should mean that they should be bound together. But the Gemara then you know comes back and says kapot. but it only says kapot. It doesn't say kapot. It doesn't give you any term to put them together in to where the implication would be that they should be bound together. How do you even know that if you're missing one of these species, you're going to not fulfill the mitzvah? That that missing any one of them would be um, a not a deterrent. Uh, a disqualification, I guess, although not in the same way that we used disqualification the other day, right? It would nullify the capacity to have this be count as your mitzvah. 
that you should take it for yourself, or you should take it to you, I guess, that the taking of it should be all together at once. So the Gemara here is exploring, I think, these parameters of what does it mean to take the four minim, and should they be bound together, or what if you have not all of them together? And at the end of the day, you know, the conclusions are, as we carry them out today, we take them all together without binding the effort to the other three. And then the Gemara says, Rabbi Ishmael, meaning, because, right, the first, the comment we just said was Rabbi Lezer going back on Rabbi Akiva, and now we come back to Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael, Manafshach. If you want to say, according to Rabbi Ishmael, right, he was the one who said that the lulav, that the whole, you know, your four medium here are fine, even if two of the tops of the Hadassim are cut off. Manafshach, either way. Ishli mean by so what happens? He says, if you need all of your your hadasim to be whole, right, then the ones that are severed, the ones that are missing the tops, don't they're not considered beautiful, right? That would be a problem because they've been, you know, truncated literally. So then, let him say that they should all three of them be whole. Right, if that's the requirement that they should be that there should be hidur in the hadasim, and if he doesn't require them to be whole, then why should he have even one of them be required to be whole? Why not just say like Rabbi Tarfon says, any three of them, all three of them, if they're cut off, that should be fine. So this is a it's a question on Rabbi Shmuel's logic. You know, it he doesn't provide logic, right? He just says two out of three, if they're cut off, you still have a kosher lulav. But here it says, well. So the Gemara says, well, if you, what you mean by that is you've got a, a visual problem, right? This is what I suggested before. The question of whether it really does um, provide a blemish. If it's a blemish, then you've got a problem with all of, with any of them. If it's not a blemish, so why why can't you have all three of them knocked off? Amar, bira'a, amar, rabbi'ami, chazar, bo, rabbi Ishmael. So this, of course, is not a very common practice that we see. But what happened? So Bira'a, this is a sage that, Yudina, do you have a who's who on him? Because I know nothing. Oh, I don't. I didn't even think to look. But okay. I can try we'll later. To, yeah. We'll have to look him up. Bira'a said, the Rabbi Ami said, that, I mean, we're talking the land of Tanaim, that much we know. Um, Rabbi Shmuel went back on what he said. And he, at the end of the day, says that, in fact, you only need one Hadas, you know, for the for the bottom line mitzvah. And that one must be whole. So on the one hand, he goes back, but really what he's going back on is not to say that that three, he's not taking Rabbi Tarfon's position. If anything, he's taking Rabbi Akiva's position. And his conclusion is, or we might infer from it, that the fact that those two branches that could be cut off don't um, get in the way of fulfilling the mitzvah, well, he still, he still holds that, right? He says, you just have to have the one and the one has to be complete. And that's that, except for, of course, we still take three. So so all of this, I think, is, again, they're exploring what are the minimum requirements um, of to be able to fulfill the mitzvah of taking the Dalit medium, taking the Lulav. Um, and, and I think that's it. Meaning, like, the disputes here, this, the discussion here, right, the, different, the differences of opinion boil down to how minimalist can you go 
right? Rabbi Akiva's opinion is about as minimalist as you could go, one of each. And the question of whether you bind them together is resolved very prettily, I guess, from the psukim, from the biblical verse to say, you know, how the fact that you don't have a conjunction to put the lulav to bond, to put the lulav together in the same sentence, as it were, meaning they are in the same sentence, but they are not combined in the same sentence. So then you don't have to bind them, right? So that's what I mean by it's it's a pretty inference from the biblical text. Yeah, I just want to point out here that this opinion of Rabbi Akiva's is very famous. That he really believes that it's just one of each that you need to have. I mean, it's famous, but it's not halacha. No, it's not. But I just wanted to point out. I just it's like a well known opinion of his. That's all right. No one does. Oh. But but that's what I'm saying. Like there's so many halachic positions of Rabbi Kiva that that are psak, you know. Right, 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 right. And also, like when you read it, you're just like, that would look so different if we did it that way. It really would, by the way. Right, but I just love this whole passage because, you know, when you're, we've seen this many times that the Tanayim sort of are trying to work out like how did things work in the Beit Hamikdash. But you would think something like this was pretty consistent. But I think there's actually a hint here. And there was a hint actually a couple of times ago where it talked about it like the Ithrogan were preserved from generation to generation that I don't think Lulav was done all the time. I think it was actually hard for people to get some of these species. And so therefore, some of the Masora was lost about how many you, you took or it really wasn't settled yet. Maybe it was one of these, as Anne, as you called, sussing out conversations that maybe there were really pockets of people who did it one way and others who did it another way. But you see sort of like Rabbi Yishmael backs down pretty quickly here. Well, the other thing I would say is that for all that we nowadays all, you know, all over the world, Jews take Ulavim at Drogim, the whole shebang. Um, when there was a Beit HaMikdash and there was a requirement to own your own on the first day, right? And it was then, but they were taken all seven days in the Beit HaMikdash, but outside of the Beit HaMikdash, right? I feel like Maybe they weren't like maybe it wasn't as hard and fast of a practice yet because everybody knew that it was happening in the Bain Mekdash and we over here were just Drabana. Now we believe in keeping the Drabanans, I understand, but I feel like this distinction between I mean also it's a little bit specious what I'm saying, because the Tanayim, of course, are after the time of the Beta Mekdash. Um but I'm j I just wonder like how long did it take for everybody everywhere to take the little of an etrog all all week right as if it were the bottom line requirement as compared to the previous generation or two generations before when it wasn't the bottom line requirement the bottom line the mitzvah the the best way to do it was the way they did it in the beta mcdash and everybody else was just a mirror yeah i think that's an interesting point and and but i but you it, it, I, I think that's totally a possibility. There's a hint here that this was not as common of a practice as it is today. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rink us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>